For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at um, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 through 18. Really, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And honestly, I feel a little bit intimidated teaching this passage because it's so familiar to, to many Christians. But I entitled this, Radiating the Life of Christ. One of the things that God wants us to do in this world is to represent him, as we'll see. And that as we grow in Christ's likeness as followers of Christ, that people actually get an impression of who God is based on our life and our words. Paul begins in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. We need to cast our minds back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul contrasted the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The word covenant just simply means an agreement between two parties. And God throughout Israel's history created many different covenants with his people. And God in a future time when we read in the Old Testament, said that he would strike up a new covenant with his people and that that would be ratified through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we're living really at a time of great privilege where we have complete understanding of what God was doing all along throughout salvation history. And as a result, he tells us that we shouldn't lose heart. You know, this whole message of Christ really centers around mercy, God's love and his mercy. You know, I think when uh, many of us think of Christianity, we think of God's judgment or God's punishment that God is exacting. He's looking for ways to try to catch us slipping up in some way. And yet the God of the Bible is actually a God of mercy and love. He sees that his people are alienated, separated due to our rebellion. But in his love and mercy for us, he sent his own son, Jesus, to come and die for us in order to forgive us for the wrongdoings we've done. And so this formed the basis then for Paul feeling this encouragement to press on, even though he faced many setbacks, many failures, and lots of suffering throughout his service for Christ. He continues in verse two, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in the craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So you look at that and you think, what does it mean? Um, I really like the new living translation on this. It actually kind of puts this in more modern language. It says, we reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. So I guess one accusation people were launching against Paul and his character was that he was a manipulator, that he was actually distorting God's word and that he was trying to get these people, the Corinthians, to follow him based on uh, this false teaching. 
And so he says, we, we didn't manipulate you. We didn't pressure you. We didn't compel you to do something you didn't want to do. Instead, we presented to you the word of God as it is. And you know for yourselves, based on what you have read, that we are speaking the words of God. And so I think there's a lesson for us to learn here that, you know, as we represent Christ in this world, as we radiate his light out into the world, that we're not here to pressure people. We're not here to try to compel people to believe. That's only something that can happen between God and, an, and um, a person. It's a, tr- a personal transaction that takes place between him and that individual. Our job is mainly to lay out the information and try to persuade people, but never overstepping that boundary. He says in verse 3 and 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul sort of pulls back the curtain and reveals to us that there's this spiritual war that's actually raging behind the scenes, that we're actually engaged in a spiritual battle. And he makes it very clear in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that this isn't a battle between you know, flesh and blood, but this is a spiritual battle mainly in the realm of ideas and truth, that God's enemy seeks to try to blind the minds of people to forever separate them from God. You know, at the cross, Jesus' death signaled Satan's ultimate defeat. So at that moment, Satan knew there was really nothing he could do to God. And so he decided to take aim at those whom God loves. And that's the reason why we see God's enemy um, employing tactics to try to divide us from God. Now, for those who don't know Christ, one of the ways that uh, God's uh, enemy tries to create that alienation, that separation, is by creating fear. Here's an example from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. The author says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. You ever wonder as you look around, you know, why are we caught up in this rat race scurrying around trying furiously to try to complete a degree, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, clawing to try to make our way up the corporate ladder. Or, you know, we're, we're voraciously trying to accumulate more and more money and possessions. And yet nobody seems to stop and ask the, a basic question that all people should ask, which is, what happens to us when we die? Is there actually an afterlife? And, you know, you see people, they're so preoccupied with their busyness, the things that they're doing, that they never lift their heads up to actually ask that basic question. And the author of Hebrews reveals to us that the reason why people are resistant or reluctant 
to ask that question is because of fear of dying. I've talked to numerous people who've come to Christ, and one of the things that they recount from before the time they met Christ was the fear of dying. And so they just would preoccupy themselves with endless activity so they never had to ask that question. What happens? You know, for believers, it's, it's a little bit different. God's enemy knows that he can't separate us from the love of God once we forge a personal relationship with Christ. But he knows that he can neutralize our effectiveness by creating separation, by creating distance between us and God. And that's why you feel this spiritual resistance a lot of times whenever you, you try to do something for God. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You're, you're trying to read the Bible, right? And you're real motivated. But as soon as you open up the Bible, it's like these alien thoughts start to come into your mind. Things that you don't even really care about. You start wondering, why is it that every time I do my laundry, I always lose a sock? <laughs> you know, you start pondering that for a little bit. Or you're sitting there and you know you're, you're, you're reading the first lines of a verse and you think to yourself, you know, I really should wash my dog right now. <laughs> or, you know, maybe for some of us who are more philosophically minded, we ask ourselves questions like, do numbers ever end? <laughs> and so, you know, these, these thoughts start entering our minds and we wonder, why am I thinking this right now? Why is that relevant? And you realize that, you know, <clears throat> God's enemy knows that if he can prevent us from drawing close to God that that's going to neutralize our effectiveness for him. Because as we draw upon the power of God through our personal time, that equates to us being able to, you know, put out that power as we try to serve him. Uh, think about times where, you know, we step out the door and we think to ourselves, okay, I'm heading to home church, but really I'd rather just stay at home. I'd rather play video games. I'm sort of like tired and I'd rather just be alone, not be around people. But you decide you're going to press on. So you get in your car, and so you arrive at home church, you sit down, and you hear the Bible teaching, and you know slowly you feel this pall start to lift. After the meeting, you talk to somebody, and uh, you actually get into a really good spiritual conversation with that person. And, you know, afterward, you're stepping into your car to go home and you think to yourself, I'm so excited, so happy that I went to home church. And yet, prior to that, I was dreading it. What happened? You know, God's enemy at every juncture will try to prevent us or stop us, block us from doing things for God. Paul says in verse 5 and 6, we don't, we don't preach Christ. Uh, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he says, you know, we're not here self-aggrandizing. This isn't about us. And that's very different from a lot of times what you see when you turn on the television and you see these televangelists, you know, where they're name dropping these famous people, they're promoting themselves or their newest book. 
Paul said, you know, the, the thing that I wanted to do is sort of get out of the way so that the, the life of Christ might be clearly seen. I remember one time at one of our yearly summer institutes, uh, one of the speakers got up and prayed, God, I pray that I would just get out of the way so that you would be clearly seen as we, as we talk tonight. That really struck me. You know, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what people see in us. The life of Christ. He says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So he uses this metaphor of earthen vessels. These were common in the ancient world. And maybe what Paul's thinking about here is a small oil lamp that was made of clay. You would fill these things with oil and you'd have a wick that would come out that you would lighten, you know, it would provide um, illumination for your house. And so it may be that in this metaphor, the oil or the light represents the treasure. And the earthen vessels probably refers to either our physical bodies or our fallen human nature. Our self-sufficiency, our self-protectiveness, our self-exaltation that we feel that often prevents the life of Christ to be seen. He says in verse 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. So in the remaining verses, Paul talks about suffering. And really, he lays out three things. He talks about the inevitability of suffering. He talks about the purpose of suffering and the future outcome of our suffering. And so he starts off here with the inevitability of suffering. This is something that you see throughout this passage. He doesn't explicitly state it like we see in other New Testament passages, but it's implied. Look at verse 11. Later in this passage, he says, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. And so he's saying, if, if you want to live for Christ, you will inevitably face suffering. Or think about what he says in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Outwardly we are wasting away or wearing away. You know, think about that. Our lives are finite. Anything that we try to grasp onto is ultimately receding. It's wearing away. You know, think about your physical body, your heart, for example. You know, your heart is sort of like a wind-up clock, and it's got a certain number of ticks in it, and eventually it's going to go out. It's wearing away. You know, you think about your Physical attractiveness, people in our culture are constantly trying to maintain their physical attractiveness. Or, you know, as you get older, people spend tons of money and effort to try to maintain their physical attractiveness. Although time wears that away. You know, think about your relationships where, you know, you gather a group of friends around you and, uh, and almost immediately time and circumstances create distance. And within a few years or a decade, you find that that closeness that you had with these friends is now gone. It's worn away. Or your family. You know, 
Again, time and circumstances creates distance. And over time, over the decades, one by one, your family starts to disappear. And so everything that we cling on to really is wearing away. You know, all of the things that we desire, all the things that we hold on to dearly, it's almost like, you know, a wave comes in, you experience it, and it recedes. That's what life is like. I know that's like bumming you out, right? You probably came here to listen to something a little bit more uplifting. But it's reality. That's what we face. You know, one thing that's really odd about our culture today is that we often seem surprised by suffering. Yet people in other cultures and really throughout time have anticipated that suffering is something that comes with life. You know, today we live in a culture where uh, we try to escape suffering at all costs and we find ourselves surprised whenever it enters our life. And so we're caught off guard. One of the things that God says is that not only will you suffer, like everybody else in this world, you're not exempt just because you're a Christian, but indeed you will suffer more if you decide that you want to follow me. Well, Paul details the type of suffering he experienced. He says in verse 8 that he was afflicted which um, in the New International Version says hard-pressed. It's almost like we're hemmed in by bad circumstances. You know, Paul faced lots of bad circumstances as he was traveling throughout the world, spreading the message of Christ. He was shipwrecked in one case. Uh, He was traveling and in danger of bandits. And so he faced lots of bad circumstances as he tried to serve Christ. You know, today, our experience probably will be that, you know, circumstances will be that an unexpected cost will arise and we will end up having no money. Or, you know, maybe a health problem will come into our lives that's debilitating. And so in those moments, we can feel like we're being hemmed in. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before where it just seems like, One thing after the other is just going wrong and you feel surrounded by bad circumstances. And you feel like it's going to crush you. He talks about being perplexed, which literally means without a way. Confusion can actually create quite a bit of suffering in our lives. Feeling like the future is unknown, that can create anxiety. You know, so many people that I encounter today... Uh, feel anxiety in their lives. And partly it's because they, they don't know where they're headed. They feel directionless. They feel confused. And even in the Christian life, we may feel this way as well, where, you know, we are uncertain about God's will for our lives. Or maybe we feel like God isn't close. And so we feel confused. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe, maybe my walk with him is just coming undone. He talks about being persecuted. Paul certainly experienced persecution in a way that that I can assume none of us have ever experienced. You know, I was talking to a uh, pastor from uh, Southeast Asia who comes from a predominantly Muslim country. And 
I was talking to him, and he was, he was describing to me how he met Christ. And he said that uh, he was actually being trained to become an imam. Uh, but as he was going around trying to convert Christians, he met a Christian who uh, said some things that, that really caused him to rethink his faith. And over a period of time, he actually became a Christian. And when he finally decided that he was going to reveal that to his family, he said that his parents cut him off and kicked him out of the house. Sometime later, uh, the building where he and a few other believers were meeting in his village was burned down, and he actually had to, to flee to Singapore. And God, he said, came to him and spoke and said, you need to go back to your country because your people need you. I mean, you know, most of us are never going to experience anything like that. You know, at most, what we're going to experience is people saying cruel things about us because, you know, we hold biblical views that are controversial. Or, you know, maybe people will say things uh, about us that are untrue because they're resistant to Christianity and maybe even hostile. And, you know, that can be painful, especially when that comes from our family and friends where we face mockery from them because we're trying to live radically for God. They're just sitting there wondering, why are you devoting all of this time to this thing? It makes no sense. It's almost, it almost seems fanatical that you're living this way. <clears throat> and then he says that he was struck down. And this refers to unexpected failures and disappointments. You know, you look at Paul's life and his ministry. Um, his ministry began with him getting struck down. In Acts chapter 9, as he was actually going to Damascus to mow down some Christians, Christ struck him down. And that began his ministry. But really, throughout his service for Christ, he experienced tons of setbacks. And likewise, you know, when we serve Christ, we're going to experience setbacks as well. We're going to face opposition. Things that we're going to put our hand to, we're going to end up failing at. And, you know, for some of us, we're eager, we're excited to serve God so long as we succeed. And yet, <clears throat> it's inevitable that we will fail, that we'll experience reversals, and that'll be a huge test for us. Well, we should be very clear here that God doesn't cause suffering to enter our lives. He allows it to enter our lives. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, make these uh, statements, you know, after a natural disaster. Well, you know, God was judging those people or that city because of their unrepentant sin. Or you'll hear people say, in the midst of suffering, you know, I guess God caused this for a reason. You know, God looks at our suffering in the world, and he isn't indifferent to it. When he looks at our suffering, he's pained by it. He's unhappy that there's so much evil in the world. He's horrified by it. And so God doesn't cause suffering or evil in the world, but he does allow it. And the reason he does that is because he knows that he can redeem even the most painful suffering that we experience. 
He could take the worst circumstances. He could take the worst failures. And he can use that for his own good. And, you know, proof of this is the fact that he took probably the most horrific form of torture, the cross, crucifixion. And he, he used that to deliver really the greatest act of redemption we've ever seen. The Bible teaches that, you know, Jesus bore the sins of the entire human race so that we could experience forgiveness. And I'm sure that as the disciples were sitting there watching Jesus hung on the cross, his blood street body hanging there, they must have thought to themselves, why would God allow this to happen to him? Why would he let this senseless act of evil happen? Little did they know God was doing something incredible through Jesus' suffering. And if he can do that through what Jesus endured, think of what he could do through your life and the suffering that you're enduring. You know, this thought that God could redeem even the worst suffering allowed Paul to really struggle through adversity and emerge with hope. Look at what he says here. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. You know, bad circumstances surrounded him, and yet he never felt like it completely overwhelmed him. He says, we're perplexed, but not despairing. You know, even though he felt confused at times, even though he felt like he had lost his way, he never, he never fell into hopelessness. He never spiraled into despair. He says, we're persecuted, but not forsaken. Even though all the people around him mocked him, beat him, abandoned him, he knew that even if nobody else was there, that there was one who would never leave him or forsake him. He said, I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. Even though he experienced failure in his ministry, he didn't let, it, let, he didn't let that destroy him or ruin him. <clears throat> he says in verse 10 and 11, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also might be made manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So this leads us to our second point, which is the purpose of suffering. Paul makes it very clear here that the reason why God allows suffering to enter our lives is because he wants to transform our lives. <clears throat> you know, look at verse 16. He makes this even more clear. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. You know, there are two parts to growing with God. The one part is where you're spending time with God and your inner life is growing. You're, you're praying, you're reading the Bible, you're gaining a knowledge of God. And so that life of Christ is growing within. But then there's this hard external shell, the earthen vessel that is actually encapsulating that life, making it difficult for people to see. And so what God has to do is he actually has to chip away at this hardened exterior 
in order to bring about the life of Christ so that people can see it. And so God uses suffering to chip away at these nagging character flaws that we see in our lives. You know, think about Romans 5, verse 3 and 4, where Paul gives us sort of this domino effect of suffering. He says, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. You know, it doesn't matter how much you read the Bible, how much you pray, that's never going to fix your character flaw. It requires breaking, where God brings difficulty in your life to bring you closer to him, or maybe to help you see more clearly your issues and to actually resolve them. I know that um, for me, um, when I first started following God, I, I went out and I tried to start Bible studies. And, you know, after a few months of doing that, they quickly fizzled. Uh, when I started leading for God, um, there were a couple Bible studies that I was leading that ended up imploding. And there have probably been, over the course of the time that I've served God, maybe a dozen guys that I've invested in to try to mentor spiritually who ended up losing their walk with God. And so, you know, in all of those cases, it was very painful to face those setbacks and those failures. And yet, you know, one of the clear messages that God was sending to me through those experiences was that he wanted me to to serve him because I actually loved people. That, you know, this wasn't about me getting on some sort of ego trip to show people how cool I was or to try to broaden my influence, but really it mattered most that I loved people. And so God may bring suffering in your life in order to reveal these character flaws and deal with them. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but if you've ever asked God, please, God, make me effective for you. I want to be used by you. You know what you just prayed for? Suffering. (laughs) Should have thought twice about doing that, right? (laughs) Secondly, suffering also produces perseverance. Uh, Perseverance is a quality that God wants to develop within us. Think about in the parable of the the soils, Jesus says in Luke 8, verse 15, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. You know, when we read this, we tend to fixate on how when you persevere, you produce a crop. We're thinking about the results. And yet, you have to notice that he says, It's through perseverance. It's not going to be easy. It's something that you're going to have to struggle with. It's going to be hard at times. You're going to face setbacks, reversals that are painful. And really, it's important that we realize that perseverance isn't something that we use to get our end result, which is fruit. God wants to instill within us the characteristic of perseverance. The fact that we can endure suffering with faith instead of capitulating to it. Also, if you look at verse 10 and 11, it's interesting that he says, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. 
and that we are constantly being delivered over to the death of Jesus. So is it, it's not like you go through this once where, you know, God takes you through this period of breaking and then you're like, glad I went through that. Now I'm so much better. It's a process. It's something that God initiates continually throughout your life. And it's really a mark that God is actually involved. You know, when you go through suffering or breaking in your life, it's painful. But the one thing you can't deny is God is the one who's actually doing this. He's involved. He's initiating this. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of painful as we experience this process over and over again is that it almost seems like God keeps circling back to the same problem. That he keeps chipping away at that same character flaw, even though we thought we had finally managed to get rid of it. Well, it turns out there are many, many layers that he has to chip away. That that character flaw is ingrained in us. Well, he says in verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spread to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. And so this brings us to our third and final point, which is the future outcome of suffering. You know, God can multiply spiritual life through suffering and trial. Not only can he transform your life, but he can transform other people's lives through your suffering. You know, my wife and I, most weeks we walk through, um, we, we take this loop uh, down Wahala. And uh, I remember a few weeks ago, maybe it was a while ago, maybe months ago, uh, we were walking and, you know, I, I saw a few acorns on the ground. I picked one up and I just thought to myself, you know, um, this small acorn can grow up to be this enormous tree. And it, it instantly casts my mind to John chapter 12, verse 24. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You know, you think about that single acorn, and it has the potential to fill an entire continent with trees. It has that potential. But under one condition, that it falls to the ground and dies. Now think about your life. Think about how your life contains infinitely more potential than a single acorn. And how if you submit your, yourself to this process of trusting God and suffering and enduring, how much God is going to be able to do through that. How he's going to be able to change the landscape of eternity through your suffering. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says these light and momentary afflictions, they're, they're small in comparison to the, the eternal glory that God will produce through our suffering. You know, it's not like God is going to replace those feelings of suffering 
or that he's going to take those away. You know, over time, they're going to fade, and then eventually what's going to happen is it will be eclipsed by the glory of what God has done through our suffering. You know, it's hard to feel that way sometimes when you're in the midst of suffering because you feel like this is never going to end. It's so painful. And yet many people who have endured incredible suffering for Christ have emerged and have seen on the other end how God was able to use that in a powerful way. And he says, finally, in verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so God will use our trials and our suffering to impact future generations. I really uh, love this story in Genesis chapter 22, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. He'd been waiting for Isaac for like 20 years, maybe 25 years. And finally, when he came, God says, now I want you to go up to this area, Moriah, and I want you to go and sacrifice him on a mountain. And so he embarked on this three-day painful journey as he silently walked with this small caravan, including his son, knowing what God wanted him to do. And as they started to ascend the mountain, Abraham gave his son the wood to carry. And as they got up there, Abraham bound him and uh, was getting ready to sacrifice him. You know, one of the really interesting things about that story is that it appears that Isaac was actually a, he volunteered to do this. Because Isaac was probably 20 years old at the time that this was taking place. And Abraham was 120 years old. And so, if Isaac wanted to resist him, I mean, he could easily overpower a 120-year-old man. At the very least, he could outrun him, right? I mean, what 20-year-old would be incapable of outrunning a 120-year-old person? I mean, if you're here and you can't outrun a 120-year-old person, you should just, like, leave right now. Go work out or something. But, you know... As Abraham is is taking this knife and is getting ready to plunge it right into Isaac, God stops him and and gets him to look at at this uh, bull caught in the thicket and says, instead, go and sacrifice this. And so this weird event that hardly anybody had seen was probably lost in history for over 600 years until God finally revealed it to Moses. Now you got to think to yourself, you know, Abraham and, and the few people who were there were the only ones who knew about this. And, you know, a lot of times when we're suffering, it's easy for us to feel like, you know, nobody's going to know or care about what I went through in this life or this suffering doesn't matter how I respond to this. And yet, when you look at Abraham and the outcome of that event, you know, we look today, 4,000 years later, and it's a, it's a signpost that points to Jesus. An incredible divine drama that God has used to give evidence for Christ and what he has done. 
You know, 4,000 years later, we're looking at Abraham's faith and marveling at what he was able to do. You know, you wonder, what could God do through the suffering you're currently going through? I wonder how people are going to respond in all of eternity as they talk about the events that took place in your life and your ability to persevere through them. But it's important for us to realize that God expects for us to play our part. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, which are our suffering, but which at the things which are not seen. So we shouldn't fixate on our suffering. You know, we're not suggesting that we simply ignore our suffering or the feelings that we have or that we shouldn't grieve. But, you know, if we focus only on our suffering, we're missing reality. That God ultimately has a bigger plan. I, I ran across this story a number of years ago where this woman, uh, Florence Chadwick, in 1950, 1952, stepped foot into the Pacific Ocean on Catalina Island. She was attempting to go and swim 21 miles to the California mainland. And she was uh, famous for swimming the English Channel both ways. And so as she attempted to swim, she encountered this dense fog that encompassed her, and she was unable to see the seashore. And um, her mom, I guess, was in the boat encouraging her on, but she was obviously extremely tired and at times was trying to quit. Fifteen hours into the swim, she finally decided that she was going to give up, even though her mom was pleading with her to keep going. And finally, when she climbed into the boat, she realized she was only half a mile away from the, from the shore. And so when she arrived on the shore, a reporter, you know, uh, came up to her and asked, you know, what are your impressions of what happened? She said, if I could only see the shore, I would have made it. You know, <clears throat> as we're suffering, we feel these... Uh, the, the, the storms of life, these afflictions, and it feels unbearable. And a lot of times there's this thick fog where we feel like we're unable to see God. And yet what God tells us to do is we need to fight through that, that we need to, to fix our gaze upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that by doing so, God can actually transform our lives and the lives of many other people, more than we'll ever even really know. All right, why don't we um, just turn to the Lord here. Yeah, Lord, there are probably people in this room right now who are suffering intensely and um, who feel lost or uh, just feel uh, like they... Uh, don't know how to uh, trust you. I pray that this passage would uh, give them encouragement and hope and um, pray that you would reveal to those individuals uh, just how involved you truly are in their lives and um, that you would also reveal your sovereignty to them as well, that you're able to take um, even the worst kind of suffering and that you can redeem that for good. I pray for those of us who don't know you personally, who uh, resonate with the idea of uh, senseless suffering. Pray that um, 
these individuals would come to the realization that um, <clears throat> your son came and, and died a really painful death, suffered, so that um, they could come into a relationship with you. And that by doing so, they can actually have the hope of eternity and that you are going to be involved in their lives and using their suffering for good. And finally, Lord, I just uh, pray that um, as we go through this study of 2 Corinthians, that um, you would continue to bless our lives through it and um, help us to see you better. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.